Welcome to Too Smart for This, a podcast dedicated to knowing better and doing better for ourselves and others, hosted by me, Alexis Barber. In this show, we invite real people and experts to share their stories about how they navigate an ever-demanding society and talk about the personal decisions we make from career to health and wellness. Let's get into it. everyone and welcome to my first interview for the Too Smart for This podcast. I am so, so excited about this because I got to t- sit down and talk to my friend Cameron, who is the founder of At Freckled Foodie on Instagram and elsewhere. She is one of the people who's been there for me since the beginning. She has always been there to support me and I am just so grateful that I got to have a conversation with her Being on Freckled Foodie and Friends, the incredible podcast she runs was one of the first podcasts I was on. So to have her as my first guest was a really beautiful full circle moment. And I'm so, so grateful that she agreed to come on. Um, If you don't know who she is, Cameron is the founder of Freckled Foodie, which is an online platform, blog, Instagram, etc. that's dedicated to making healthy living more approachable. She started it while she was working in a corporate job and subsequently got to leave the job and pursue Freckled Foodie full-time. And in addition to being a wealth of knowledge and publishing incredible recipes all the time, she is also an advocate for mental health and for anti-racism work, which I appreciate so much. So in our conversation today, we got to talk about everything ranging from her newly announced pregnancy to how she deals with anxiety, her relationship with her husband, Joe, and so much more. So I really hope you enjoy our first interview here at Too Smart for This and follow us on Instagram to see who we're going to be inviting on next. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Cameron Rogers of Freckled Beauty. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Thank you so much for having me. I feel honored. Oh my gosh. I was honored. You were the first podcast I was on. This is my first podcast that I'm recording in your, and so it was only right. Oh, you're such a sweetheart. Thank you. Of course. So I am really just want to kick off our conversation with something I want to ask a lot of people, which is what is the most life-changing thing you've learned in 2020? that I cannot micromanage and plan everything that I once thought I could. I am like a big planner and it, you know, I think it caused actually a lot of anxiety for me, but I thought it helped by like planning everything out and trying to control everything. And this year really taught me that I just can't do that because I would make plans and then the world would change. And I hit a point where I'm like, why am I even doing this to myself? Why am I planning all this stuff if it's eventually going to be canceled? And I've never, ever been one to kind of like live in the moment and, you know, whatever, go week by week. But honestly, that's all we can do right now. And, you know, even with the holidays approaching as we're recording this, like my family's talking about what is our Christmas going to look like? And I'm like, guys, we can't even have the conversation yet. Like it really is a week by week situation. Absolutely. I think that's been I'm I was the same way as you where I was planning and I think my therapist was like I think you're planning out of anxiety. You're not planning to oh, curb totally. anxiety. Oh, right? absolutely. It's like if I'm anxious, I will go to my calendar and start planning things because it's something I can control or I think I can control. I can't, mm-hmm. but it gives me a sense of control. Exactly. And like I guess as people who want to have that sort of sense of control of all times, like 
obviously that translated into our experiences with diet culture. Yes. Uh, but so I would love to hear from you, like how you've overcome, if that's been a big theme of 2020 or how have you sort of tried to curb controlling thoughts about either food or about your body or exercise while we've been isolated? It's really interesting because I think so many during 2020 with, you know, the quarantine and just the general pandemic that's happening have turned to food and or exercise as that thing that they can control or on the flip side, they feel completely out of control because you're in the house and all you're doing is snacking. And, you know, I do feel like people are going one way or the other. And I feel very fortunate to say that I don't think my mentality of food and or exercise has really been affected by what's happening in this world. And I realize that I'm, I feel fortunate for that. And it is kind of surprising for me to reflect on because if this happened three years ago, it would have been a very different situation. I would be panicking that I can't be going to all of my boutique fitness classes that I used to go to, or I couldn't get in my Equinox session every single day or right. you know, run comfortably on the West Side Highway. And it just, I think, it, again, it has to do with control. I was just looking to control things. And I think right before we went into all of this, I was really reshaping my relationship with food and exercise over the past two years. And I think going into March of this past year, I was in a really good place with both of those things where I didn't feel that, oh my God, what am I going to do? I have to be around food all the time at home, or I don't have access to my typical workouts. I just kind of shockingly for me went with the flow of it and just accepted the reality of what it is. And, you know, obviously pregnancy throws a huge wrench in that kind of situation. And I was having this conversation with my friend where I felt the best I've actually ever felt in my body right before I found out I was pregnant. And I kind of think that's life's wow. way of just being like, oh, you feel great? Let's throw this in and see how you do. Um, and it's just another test and that's fine. I'm up for it. But, you know, it is an additional, am I allowed to curse on here? Absolutely. Okay. It's like a mind fuck of sorts because I, you know, when it comes to diet culture, I listened to an episode of a show that I know we both like Diet Starts Tomorrow and Sarah Landry was on from the Birds Papaya, who I love. And she was talking about her, you know, relationship with body image over the years and specifically now that she's pregnant. And it, she's having a pretty difficult pregnancy. And I had a pretty difficult first trimester in the sense of I absolutely hated all things food, which I've never felt before. And the only things I could stomach were very bland carbs. And, you know, you think you're out of diet culture and you think you're so far past it. And then all you're eating is oatmeal, bagels, pizza, and pasta. And of course, those thoughts creep into your mind. Like, I haven't had a vegetable all day. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Like, I can't eat this. And it, that was like the first test where I really started. I spoke about it with my husband. And I'm like, I just have to keep reminding myself that my most important job right now is to just eat anything I can to fuel my body for this exactly, growing yeah. baby. Like that is my most important job. And I didn't work out for two months and that's totally fine. Like, you know, putting all things in perspective, I think has been huge for me. And again, I think 2020 has played a huge role in that shift of mindset. Of course, of course. So when you're in that moment though, of when you're freaking out, like, oh, I haven't had a vegetable or I haven't worked out, like 
for you, what was the process? Like, was it like deep frustration? And what do you say to yourself in like that moment to get out of like that fear um, and like that self, you know, doubt? Yeah. So I think it was mixed with just for the thought process. The thoughts were, I literally haven't eaten anything that's not beige in a week. Like, this is so weird. I feel very uncomfortable by this. I really miss movement, but I can't get out of bed. I haven't walked more than maybe 100 steps in a week. I am used to, you know, exercise is also a huge mental release for me. So, like, I really missed that aspect of it. Um, mm-hmm. And then on top of that, your body's changing. And I've always said, I'm so excited to be pregnant. Like, I want to have a belly. But that first trimester is so weird in the sense of, like, your belly is adjusting and changing, but you just look really bloated and like soft. And so you don't feel pregnant, but you look different. And for me, like my insecurity has always been my stomach area. So it's like really hitting me at home. Um, I feel that. Yeah. yeah. And like, I talked to my therapist about it. I'm like, I just can't tell if I'm pregnant or if I'm just eating a lot. She's like, what? Do you, there's a baby in you. You're pregnant. Um, You're pregnant. Literally. Yeah. She's like, you showed me ultrasound photos. There's something in there. But I think really for me, it's working through the thought process of why am I doing this? And I think that that's always the most important thing. Whether you're pregnant or not, it's why am I choosing to exercise or why am I choosing not to exercise this day? And there's usually a reason. You know, if I'm choosing to exercise, it's because I want some form of mental break from the reality and I want to like be able to do something for myself. I want to feel stronger. I want an increase in energy and serotonin. I want to sweat. For me, it's never, I need to lose work. It's not anymore. I need to lose weight. It's more, I want to feel strong and just more confident in my skin. And if I'm not exercising pre-pregnancy, it's because I'm tired and I want to listen to my body or I want to do something fun with my husband or family that is involves something that's not focused on exercise. And in these moments, I just remind myself, I'm not exercising because I don't have the energy. I like I am physically creating a human, which is the coolest thing in the entire world. And women are superheroes of the fact that we do this. And that is way more important than me doing a 20 minute Peloton. You know, like that, and also it's not going to change it much, you know, and that's one thing that was so funny to me is after doing, you know, eating all of these carbs and only carbs, I'm not saying carbs are bad, but literally not eating a vegetable and then also not exercising for two months. And I've been weighing myself for pregnancy reasons. I'd never weighed myself before. And I feel very comfortable in the relationship with the scale right now because I'm actually hoping to gain weight. Um, And, you know, my doctor just wants to track my weight. So whatever, I've been weighing myself once a week and I didn't gain any weight this entire time. And part of it, I think, because I definitely noticed uh, changes in my stomach, I lost all of my muscle. And as we know, muscle weighs more than fat. So I'm like, I know that there are changes happening, but the actual, like, you know, so many people are so obsessed with the scale and that number does not show everything. And this is the perfect example. Exactly. Where it's like you are doing the most insane, incredible thing in the world. But like to be obsessed with the number, to be obsessed with the, you know, macros of what you're eating would really just be a disservice to yourself in that like you're literally building another human being, which is 
literally so exciting. Um, I obviously watched your pregnancy vlog and your I listened to your solo episode about it. And it's just so important, the big things you're talking about, which are like range from being like scared of maybe having to do IVF and then ending up being able to get pregnant and then also getting pregnant during like this really wild year, obviously. Um, And then also the anxiety part of it as well. So I would love if you could talk a little bit about how you've dealt with your first trimester and anxiety and like what you like what you had to sort of go through mentally to get to a good place. Absolutely. First of all, thank you for, you know, consuming all of this content. I so appreciate it. Um, for me, as you mentioned, like, you know, early on before my husband and I had started trying, we had always envisioned, you know, after a wedding, we'll have two years ideally to just like, you know, be with ourselves alone, not have the responsibility of a child. We wanted to travel a ton in 2020 that didn't happen as everyone else is experiencing. Um, and I had said, you know, I think I should just get blood work done because I have some weird medical path and I always just feel like something's going to come up. And in my blood work, it showed that I had a very low, um, level for AMH, which is a hormone that kind of is one marker of your egg count. And I was technically in the infertile range and a fertility specialist basically told me I have to start doing IVF right away. And we hadn't even started trying yet. And so that was really difficult for me to, I guess, like accept in a way because I was just so confused. I'm like, wait, this just went from zero to 60. We haven't even started trying. And now you're telling me we have to do IVF. That kind of sounds insane. So scary. So scary. And, you know, I have so many thoughts on the conversation now that I reflect back, but you know, it was just so overwhelming. It's so expensive, but I had also just been like, I mean, I guess this is what we have to do. You know, I'm kind of on board. I fortunately decided I wanted to get a second doctor's opinion and he was way more like, you know, let's do some more tests. We don't have to rush into this. And at this same time, I had gotten a little laissez-faire with the contraception methods we had been doing because I was just told I was infertile and all of a sudden I get pregnant. So... It is just mind blowing to me. Everyone's like, have you called that fertility specialist to tell her? And I haven't. And, you know, I shared about this as it was happening before I found out I was pregnant. And so many people messaged me being like, my exact level was that low and I got pregnant easily. Like, it's not the only thing that, you know, determines your fertility. So there's a lot going into that conversation that's separate, but that obviously was anxiety inducing of, wow, we're going to have to, you know, we will eventually get pregnant. It just may be different than I thought, but you know, health is a big anxiety trigger for me and the feeling of feeling quote unquote broken, which you're not if you have to do this, but I felt that way in the moment. And that was a huge trigger for me. But then obviously we found out we were pregnant. So I was so, I mean, I was utterly shocked. I took the test on a complete whim. I didn't even tell Joe I was taking it. I had no plans of being pregnant. I was honestly only taking it because I had plans to do mushrooms the next day and I was being safe. So there was really no idea. That was my favorite part of the story. I won't even lie. I was like, no, I was dying. When we told our parents the next day, my mom's like, wait, why did you even take a test? And I was like, well, I was going to do mushrooms today. She's like, all right, we'll get back to that. Um, Yes. So that was honestly why. And I was so shocked. And I didn't feel anxious in that moment because I was just so kind of, I mean, relieved of like, I guess we're not doing IVF and this just happened. Um, And then the symptoms started to hit 
after a few weeks. And I think for me, I just shared about this today, and I talk about this a lot in the solo podcast episode you mentioned, and also an episode I just released with Whitney Port. But I had such high expectations for pregnancy. My friends made fun of me because my whole life I've said my body craves being pregnant. I cannot wait to be pregnant. It's going to be the best nine months of my life. And something that is a theme in my life is that I have a hard time when reality does not meet my expectations. And that shows up in many aspects of my life. I mean, it's something that Joe and I fight about all the time because I create this alternate reality of expectations in my mind and I don't speak them out loud. And then when something happens, I'm like, wait, this isn't what I wanted. He's like, well, you, you never even told me you wanted that. So wait, same, literally (laughs) Joe and Jeff need like a therapy group together. I'm like, wait, you're golfing tomorrow. I I thought we were going to like sleep in, make pancakes, watch them. And he's like, you never told me any of this. Exactly. So it's a common theme in my life. And I think this was just the largest focal example of it because I had such high expectations and I don't, the reality was just the complete opposite. And I struggled a lot with that because part of it is I don't think enough women talk about how difficult the first trimester is. And obviously it's not as difficult for everyone. And I think also at this time, you know, it's kind of a quote unquote secret. So people aren't openly sharing everything. And I also wasn't like actively looking for the information, but I also think mostly is that there's a lot of guilt around and shame around complaining over any aspect of pregnancy or motherhood absolutely. because you're supposed to be grateful 24 seven. And it's just, you're only supposed to be happy about everything, which I think is total bullshit because I can be grateful and still be honest. I don't have to be grateful and lie to you. So I can be, I'm so grateful that I'm pregnant and that it happened so quickly. And I realize how fortunate we are when that isn't the case for many in this world. However, that doesn't take away from the fact that the first trimester was absolute hell for me. And anxiety, exactly. yeah. And like anxiety wise, I had gone off, I was on amitriptyline and the month before we started or the month before we even found out we were pregnant, not that we were trying, I had talked to my doctor and I, she did not want me on that specific medication while I was potentially going to get pregnant. So we were going off of it early just to, you know, recalibrate and decide if I need to go on something else and get it out of my system. Luckily I did that, got pregnant, and then I wasn't on anything. And I mean, the first few weeks I I did not sleep. I, I was up all night long with anxious thoughts. And then when I would kind of wake up in the morning, it was on the verge of a panic attack every day. And then I'd get so anxious about the thought of going to bed because I knew what was going to happen. And I called my doctor and was like, I I cannot do this. I definitely cannot live nine months like this. And I need to go on some form of medication because also they take away, not that these things are vices, but a lot of my anxiety tools like weed and CBD and the occasional glass of wine. And then of course they're like, okay, now don't be anxious because an anxious womb is not great for a baby. And I'm like, what the the hell? Like you just so much pressure, so much pressure. You took away everything I rely on. And also I'm pregnant during a global pandemic. Like there's so much. So I ended up going on Zoloft which my doctor was very comfortable with me being all while I'm pregnant. It changed everything for me. It honestly saved my pregnancy. I say that without exaggerating. I had so many fears of because I was so anxious, it's going to lead to a miscarriage. And I'm not saying it necessarily wow. would have, I'm not a doctor, but I, I was very concerned about 
the environment that I was going to be creating a human in. And so I am on Zoloft now. It has helped me immensely. I'm a huge proponent of medication. I do a ton of other things. And, you know, medication isn't my first action, but some of us just need the extra assistance and that's more than okay. Absolutely. And I mean, being on anxiety medication is something you've also like just been a big advocate for because it's so hard. And in this point of time, like you said, it's a global pandemic. You're pregnant. There's millions of stressors for women who are pregnant in this world, especially women who have a following such as yourself. Like, So I joke that my mom has been pregnant for half my life because she literally has. And it's my superhero. Mine too. She's great. And she was like, and I was like thinking about how um, she suffered like a um, sort sort of the same thing that Chrissy Teigen did when I was in eighth grade. And she had three kids after that. And I remember like the depression, the anxiety, and like the fear of you know, losing these babies again was like overtook her to a point where she's also been a big advocate for anxiety medication and stuff like that as well. So, and I think that that just really goes to show that there is so much pressure on women, no matter what, it's like she was being told she should be grateful for these kids, but she was so scared. So it is, there's so much going on. Right. And we just expect women to be so happy, go lucky, like uh, a smile. God forbid a woman speaks her mind. Period. Like, it's so wild. So I'm glad that you're bringing awareness to it, especially the idea that the first trimester is not great. No. So I'm glad that you're talking about it. But one thing you talked about before you even got into this that you just briefly mentioned was how you had, like, envisioned your life after getting married. And so I first started like um, the first podcast I had heard with you in it was the We Met at Acme one where you talked about your relationship with Joe, which like is a big, um, what is it called? Like inspiration. I don't want to say inspiration because that puts like pressure on other people. But obviously, Jeff and I have been together since I was like 18 and he was like 19, 20. And so it's fun to see other people who have made it and sort of stayed together (laughs) for a long time and are now starting a family. So could you talk to me about your relationship with Joe, like the things you've overcome, things you are still working on and like what um, envisioning a life together was like for you guys? Of course. I... So basically, we started dating when I had just turned 16. We actually met like two weeks before my 16th birthday. Well, to really bring it back like a long time ago, we actually went to elementary school together, but he was a grade above me. And like, obviously, you didn't socialize with people in other grades, especially the other gender. And we did. Yeah, we were in speech class together, though, because we actually both um, had speech impediments for our R's, which is comical because our last name's Rogers. And he graduated way before me. I still have a kind of a speech impediment that comes out every once in a while. I was there until fourth grade. He he got to get out earlier on than I did. Um, and our my parents are actually high school sweethearts and weirdly enough, went to high school with his dad and all of his dad's siblings. So our parents- Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's crazy. So our parents did know each other. Our older sister, my older sister and his older brother were also in the same grade at the same elementary school. And my mom and his mom were on the PTA. Is that what it's called? Yeah, PTA board or whatever. Um, so they knew each other. So there were so many like connections, but we just didn't necessarily know each other. And 
when I was a junior, the summer before junior year of high school, he was transferring. I was at the private school. He was at the public school in our town. He was transferring to the private school and going to repeat his junior year, um, basically to get recruited for college basketball. And I knew like a few of his friends and there was this one massive party in our town of like every high school was there, like one of those big merging parties. And I'm talking so to, yeah, I'm like talking to a few of his friends that I knew and they're like, Oh, have you met our friend Joe? He's going to PBS this year. And I was like, Oh, Hey, nice to meet you. Whatever. And then two weeks later we were at another party together. And when he eventually came to PBS, like he didn't really know anyone which now I think back I'm like that's so wild I would have been so nervous um and I he would hate me for saying I took him under his wing but like I kind of did I mean I basically (laughs) was like here are all of my friends join our friend group and we were really just friends like there were so many jokes about him coming to the school he was a little bit of like you know he had a reputation that we can say at his high school. And so we were all making bets of like who of our friends is going to get with him. And we were actually like joking that my best friend Lizzie was going to be the one. We're like, Lizzie's definitely going to be the one that gets with Joe, like blah, 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 blah. And we start hanging out and it just felt so natural. And he is not shy whatsoever. The kid doesn't shut up. However, he takes a little bit to get to know. And he's at that time specifically, he wasn't as like, Oh, I'm, I just met you. Let me give you my entire self. Like you kind of had to earn if that makes sense. That makes sense. It's like an onion. He's got a lot of layers. You had to peel them back. And I definitely got access very quickly. So I saw this side of him and fell in love with him. And we started hanging out, the two of us, and we really were just hanging out as friends, but we were like hanging out in his basement watching Laguna Beach and Newport Harbor. And we would come to my house. My mom's like, who is this boy? Like, are you dating him? I'm like, no, we haven't even kissed. We're just friends. He finally made the move. And then like we, I guess, started like hooking up. I don't even know what it was in high school. Um, and... I guess like after two months, I was like, are you going to ask me to be your girlfriend? Like, what is this? I basically pressured him into asking me out. And um, has to be done. I have hilarious AIM conversations that I found. It's so comical. So we started dating junior year of high school. And it just, I mean, he is like my favorite person on this planet and my best friend. And I love him to death. And we had always said, you know, at that time, I do feel like everyone in relationships in high school is like, I'm going to marry this person. I'm going to stay with them. I'm so in love. It's this puppy love. You haven't faced anything difficult. It's all just so exciting and new. And it's a lot of firsts. And I felt that way too. And that doesn't go to mean to say that those emotions didn't matter. But, you know, at the moment, I had no idea what we were about to endure or experience. And I could have never predicted that we would actually go through this all and get married. So I remember when we were leaving for college, he went off to a small school in Iowa called Grinnell to play basketball. I went to a small school in Pennsylvania to play lacrosse. And we obviously were going to be very far away from each other, but we had decided that we wanted to stay together. And of course, everyone puts their opinions on you. Well, you have to do a break if you're going to stay together the whole time. Like you have to quote unquote experience college. It's my least favorite people say. It makes me so angry. Um, And so we went into college both very much like, listen, I love you. You're my best friend, but I'm not like going to not go out or have friends or hang out with the opposite sex. Like this is not going to be something that 
holds me back in those ways. And we both really agreed on that. And I honestly think the reason that we survived, I guess you could say, dating through college is we both played a sport. So we were so busy that there wasn't this time to just sit around and like bitch about how much we missed each other. And we were so far away that there was zero pressure to see one another because we both had stuff every night of the week for sports and every Saturday. So I couldn't fly to Iowa and come back Saturday night and come back Sunday night. And he couldn't do the same. So there was no pressure of like, why aren't you visiting me this week? Like if it were a four hour drive, which I think would have been difficult. There was just, we live our separate lives. When I have winter break, I will come visit you because he only came home for a few days because they were in season. And when he had fall and spring break, he would come visit me because I was so close to home. And it just worked that way. So we'd see each other once a semester. And, you know, other than that, we would just talk and we'd both go out and we'd be like, okay, I'm going out for the night. If we happen to get home at the same time, we can drunkenly FaceTime. If not, I'll talk to you tomorrow. And that's that. I'm not going to sit in the corner of a party and text you the whole time about how much I miss you when all my friends are having fun. And so when people say, did you miss out on college experience? It pisses me off because the college experience is not just like drunkenly making out with frat boys in a basement. There's so much more to it. And I actually feel like I experienced more of college because I wasn't wrapped up in the games that college boys were playing. And I got to, you know, I lived this very independent college life to the point where actually it was difficult when we lived in the same city afterwards, we had to readjust to like, oh, I have to make plans with you because now we're in the same city. I'm so used to doing my own thing and talking to you, but That was one thing. And then, you know, we did break up for two semesters during that time. One was very just like juvenile, naive, like, well, we should do this. But like, there were so many rules and we talked the whole time. It was silly when I looked back on it. And the second time was quite honestly, like totally on Joe's terms. It was right after his basketball season ended, which for both of us, when our seasons ended, that was more difficult to stomach than actually graduating college. It was a real like, what the hell just happened? I'm never going to play a game again in my life. Like, who am I anymore? And he called me one day and was like, listen, it's not that I, you know, I love you. There's no one I want to be with, but I just am like kind of freaking out that I'm about to be done with school. And then we're moving and then we live in the same city and then we move in together and then we get engaged and married. And like, you know, I I totally get that. It's a lot. Yeah. It's so much. So we decided to not be together for the last semester of college. And Honestly, I think the hardest thing for us was readjusting after college and deciding, do we want to be together? You know, a lot happened that semester and there were plenty of fights post-college and figuring out what does our future look like. And I think that was the moment that we were actually tested. And I say to my friends all the time, like that was when it changed from puppy love, I want to marry you to like we've been through toughness. You are my rock. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And there's two, that's two very different types of, I want to marry you emotions. And, you know, it's not all been easy since that time whatsoever, but I think that we really respect each other in a very deep emotional way. And we allow the other one to grow and, you know, we're on separate tracks and we're parallel and hopefully growing in the right direction, but we're not holding the other one back out of fear uh, like that we would lose them if they grow, grew too much, if that makes sense. 
Of course, yeah. And I think that's the hardest part of building a relationship is like, especially when you're so young, like for for Jeff and I, it was like we were both in college at the same time deciding what we wanted to do, where we wanted to go and everything and also just trying to grow up. And now that it's like post-grad, it's like, well, I'm going to go to business school. Are you right. going to go to business school? Are you going like, when do you want to get married? And we have cultural differences. He's from an African family and like, I'm from a low-key conservative family. So mm-hmm. it's like a hard thing to manage together. So that this, I think Jeff and I are in that moment that you're talking about right now where you're testing to see if like, you do we go through hard things? And if so, how does it work? And right. that is a really, I really love how you broke that down of like, puppy love versus deep respect and love yeah and like there are just so many layers of love that's one thing I've also really come to terms with and something I always look forward to because you know I loved him in high school but then I found this new love for him when we went through the hardship and decided to stay together and then a whole new love when we got engaged and then when we got married and even when we got Charlie and now that I'm pregnant and I'm sure there's going to be the most intense growth of love when we have a child just there's so many different stages. And I also think, you know, during our time of getting back together post-college, there was a period where we weren't necessarily speaking. And I'm someone that likes to write out all of my emotions. And so we actually had a very lengthy conversation over email. And one of the emails said something that I really, in the moment was so hard to hear, but respect and appreciate now where he was like, I've come to the realization that I don't need you to live. And so if I choose to be with you, it's because I want to, not because I feel I need to, and I don't have another option. And it's so true. You know, we chose to be together because we want to, not because it was the easy or comforting or, you know, we're supposed to be on this path and we can't get off of it decision. Right. And so many people, especially with like college relationships, fall into that trap of like, oh, it's easier or they rush into moving in together and it's really hard to just get off the train. Right. Um, We've been together for so long. We can't break up now. You know, there's never you've never been together too long. Like, in my opinion, (laughs) with the like with all things election, not to get political, but I got this one DM from this girl that was like, I'm really having a hard time. I've been with my boyfriend for so long, but like, I just found out he's a Trump supporter and I just I don't know what to do. And I was like, girl, there is never too long. Hop off the train. Hop off the train. We cannot have misogyny in our house. I'm like, there is never a relationship that you've been in too long to leave. Love that. Um, so I guess now that you spoke of Trump supporters, question for you. You've had a lot in terms of when you when um, the death of George Floyd rocked our world again in May to June. You were one of the only influencers who really spoke up about it um, in a, an authentic way, in a way of like be, being honest about your past, being honest about your current ideas and everything and also putting pressure on other people to use their platform. Could you talk about what inspired you and empowered you to do that? And like what you really like, and I would also love to talk about the problem with not getting political, but what was your moment where you were like, I have to do this? Of course. Um, Well, I really appreciate those words because it's something I still have anxiety over of like, is this coming off as white centering or white performative action? And so every time I share, there is 
there are those thoughts. And so I do appreciate you saying that it what I mean, it's I know it's sincere, but I never know how it's going to be perceived or taken. So I do appreciate of that. Course. For me, I, I just had this conversation with someone else. I mean, I've always been raised in a house where people's lives matter like, you know, gay lives, black lives, like it's never been, oh, because they're different than us, they don't deserve what we have. And I think I've simultaneously always really had internal struggles with my privilege. I come from a very financially privileged home. And, you know, I don't think I ever realized that growing up, I just kind of thought my parents are very what's mine is yours to everyone in their life. And so they're very welcoming. They're not like, snooty with their money and want to make people feel less than. So I always just grew up like, well, this is just how everyone lives. You know, all of my friends. I said once to my friend, I'm like, oh, well, are they like us? And she's like, like us, we're different. She's like, no, Cammy. Like, how do you not realize that we come from two different financial backgrounds? I'm like, what? Like, I, I just had a hard time ever realizing that. And I think that especially when I then went to work on Wall Street, it just kind of encouraged that everyone around me was living the same lifestyle. So again, I just thought I was very normal and average. And I didn't realize that privilege until honestly, I started sharing on my platform. Excuse me, I have such bad indigestion. So I'm like burping throughout this conversation. Um, When I started sharing on my platform, and like, you know, posting about our apartment, that's a really nice apartment in the West Village that my parents bought me. And, you know, coming home to Princeton and going to my parents' house at the beach and going to their house in Florida, where people are like, wait, what? What's going on here? And I'm like, okay, now I realize that as I share these things, I just started feeling really uncomfortable by them and having a lot of guilt over it. And it's been a conversation that my family's had, you know, they donate a lot to charity. And my sister is my older sister has always been a little bit more aware of this than I was. But I think that was kind of the moment where I was like, I have an immense amount of privilege that I've never fully come to terms with. And it makes me feel really uncomfortable. And I do think, you know, in many, many sessions with my therapist, I think it does play a role in my like, well, I don't want to wear nice things. I don't want to care about designers. I don't want to have my hair and makeup done almost in like a rebel to my like diva mother who I love more than the world. But if that makes sense, it's something internal of that course. I still struggle with. Um, and the whole version or the interest, I guess, really, I think when I think of, you know, why am I so vocal of Black Lives Matter? Where did that really start? I think a lot of it is a like, obviously, I have lived in a very white world, but there have been very incredibly influential black people in my life that I think I never really realized what a role they played until all of this. And, you know, they're reaching out to me, thanking me. And like, you know, we had two wonderful black women live with us for like two years in our house who were soccer players who needed housing to be on this like professional team. And, you know, my gym teacher, soccer coach was this incredible black man who really molded my, a lot of my athletic career. And I just think that I never was in a place where I was like, oh, they're obviously I recognize that they had a different skin color than me, but they're, they aren't different. There's nothing different about that person in any type of negative way. And I think the real icing on the cake for me was in college. I was in this class that was basically, it was called women in the criminal justice system. There were only about like six to eight of us. 
Lafayette students and we went to the local prison in Easton, Pennsylvania, and we had class in the female minimum security center. So the first day, our teacher, we took a tour around the prison, both male and female sections. And we walk into the kind of like rec area of the minimal security women's center. And she's like, okay, go ask who wants to be in class. And so we had to approach these women and introduce ourselves. And half of them are like, what the fuck are you doing in here? Rightfully so. The other half right. were like, yeah, I'm interested. And basically the class, I mean, it was my first kind of insight into group therapy, to be honest. But the whole idea is that we are all students together learning from our teacher. We're not teaching these women. We're learning alongside them about the criminal justice system and how screwed it is and how many problems there are. And, you know, we're never allowed to refer to them as inmates or prisoners. They're inside students. We're outside students. We're never allowed to ask why they're there. You know, there there were a lot of rules to protect everyone. But I became very close with some of these women to the point where in the last class of the semester, I was hysterically crying, leaving them, hugging them, holding them, because we weren't allowed to have contact after the course as one of the very strict policies of the class. Um, And I think that was the biggest eye-opening experience to me, whether the women were white or black, just what a different life they were living and how even though we were all going through such different things in the moment, we shared a lot of the deep-rooted emotions and anxieties about life. And I mean, it ever changed me. It's my hands down most incredible educational experience. And so that then interested me in the criminal justice system and just how wrong it is and how people write off anyone for, you know, the judgment of their one worst mistake of their life that they happen to get caught for. And I'm not saying that, you know, murder, obviously there are some people who have done incredibly awful things, but a lot of people who are in these systems are on minor drug offenses of things that I've done plenty of times but gotten away with because I'm a white privileged woman. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when, honestly, it started when I, I, when Ahmaud Arbery died, I remember seeing it and being like, why are people talking about this on social media? And I shared something, I think that day that happened, and I got a lot of DMs being like, thank you, finally. Like, I haven't seen anyone talk about this, and I don't understand why. Um, you know, and then similarly with Breonna Taylor, and then obviously George Floyd. And, and that the that combination with the fact that, you know, we were also in the middle of a global pandemic, and people were now home and spending a lot more time l- observing the news. And it was just such a, right like cluster of information that sparked the fire that has been waiting to happen for a long time and was well deserving. And so I think it finally got the attention that it deserved when I speak about the Black Lives Matter movement. And for me, I really had a, I mean, I I can't say I had a difficult time because I'm a white person going through this, but it was just weird for me to observe a lot of behavior on social media because I found it confusing why some people weren't even acknowledging it and acting like their lives were still going on. And I also found it confusing mm-hmm. the whole unmuted um, situation or, you know, the blackout Tuesday, because I'm like, your black square is not going to cure racism. And I think that like, exactly. it's the exact example of white saviorism that you think by posting this one thing you're like all of a sudden you fixed racism and 
you know, I reflected a lot on my life and who I've surrounded myself with. And obviously we talk now a lot about like being an anti-racist and have I done things that are ingrained in racism? A hundred percent. Have I had racist thoughts? Yes. I'm not going to deny that. Like it's the culture I've been raised in. However, I also have not done a good job of being an anti-racist as well. Like I've been in situations where people have said things and I've awkwardly laughed because I don't know what to do. I know it's wrong, but like, what am I going to be the person who stands up and is like, you can't say that. And yeah, I should have been, but I, I wasn't. And so I think just for me, it was a very deep educational journey of more just reflecting on my past and what I've partake taken in. Is that the right term? Yes. Uh, partaken in and like accepted in a sense as just the norm or what's okay. So I don't know. I still am, I still struggle with finding the correct verbiage because obviously it's, it's a sensitive subject and I never want to act like I figured it out because I haven't whatsoever, but it's a journey that I'm constantly working on. And it's one that I really care about. And it's a conversation we have in our family a lot specifically, like, you know, my sister married a black man who I love to death and I will now have black nieces and nephews and my children will have black cousins. And, you know, that's a whole conversation. And, you know, my mom will have black grandchildren. And so this has to matter to us because if it doesn't, then we're basically excluding a whole part of our family now. Um, And so I think that's why it's hit extra close to home of just like, this is going to always be a part of my future. And I want to make sure, especially, you know, it's not lost on me that I'm about to bring a white privileged male into this world. Like he better be educated as fuck and aware and right. like kind and compassionate. And, you know, I obviously have, you know, I do have fears of like, what if he hears something from someone that he's like friends with? And then he says it to his black cousin. And then like, you know, I think about those things of like, I want this to be a conversation that's had very early on because it is a large part of our personal life now. Absolutely. I think it's important as well to think about how you're going to raise your kids and also how you're going to talk to generations around you. Like that's what, and using your voice, even though you know that you can't do everything perfectly and you don't know everything and you are going to mess up and you have messed up, I think that is the hardest thing for people to admit. And totally. by showing that, like, okay, like, I know I've been around racist people. I know, like, yes, I was raised in, like, a fiscally conservative home or, yes, I had this, like, racist, like, friend this one time. But at the same time, you have to recognize that, like, just because those things happen doesn't mean you can't do better now. Like, and right, your you past still, doesn't have to define everything. You can still change. Exactly. And you and I think everybody does want change for the better. I think there's always these conversations of like cancel culture and like people always get, you know, like once you say one wrong thing, you can never redeem yourself. And we have a rapist as president, so clearly that's not true. But I right, think no that real sorry, but there's no yeah. real cancel culture with white people. Agreed. Like I'm sorry, exactly. you don't actually get fucking canceled. Exactly. Like, you never fear is really just your fear to being called out, but none of these people are actually canceled unless you're like a Harvey Weinstein. You know, that's a exactly. very ex- ex- like massive example. But everyone else who's like had a tweet come out, you're not canceled. Your mm-hmm. life is not over. Your life never gets over. It's like there's always, especially for like white creators and influencers, if they oh, say like a racist more. thing, there's always something that like they still get 
their money. They may have like a month or two off, but it's never really canceled. Totally. I'm going to do a whole episode about that because it drives me insane. But I think that admitting like you don't know, but you do have a platform to help people learn more is the definition of what needs to be done right now. And you've always talked about how it's impossible to not get political right now. Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel the same way, but like, what do you feel like is the problem with a lot of these big influencers who refuse to acknowledge things going on or they refuse to acknowledge Trump, like Trump's actions, et cetera? Oh, gosh, I have so many thoughts. So I think for me, it's just I get so frustrated because I'm like, by saying you don't get political, it basically just means you're privileged. If you're not getting political, that means that politics aren't having a massive impact in your life, which is okay. Like, that's fine to admit, because look at me, like, you know, they're not completely impacting me unless I actually like do the research and learn and observe what's happening and get personally frustrated. They're not impacting my day to day, like ability to live. And so there's a massive privilege in that. And so if you're going to even just admit that, you can admit that you have that privilege, but you should still care. And you should, in my opinion, have these conversations. And I'm Mm -hmm. not saying you have to be like, I'm only going to talk about politics and I'm only going to be outspoken. You know, I'm going to be talk about this 24 seven. I realized I went a little, not intense, but not overboard, but I talked about it a lot and that didn't sit well with everyone, whether they were Trump supporters or not. I totally get that. Some people want social media to be a quote unquote escape. Like you can't fucking escape this shit. Um, but at the same same time, I don't understand how you could not even mention it. And I had so many issues with observing influencers who weren't talking about anything happening that's going on in this world and just sharing their skincare and their daily life and their meals. And look, I'm sharing those things too, but I'm also discussing what's happening in the world. And again, I'm not saying I'm doing it right whatsoever. I just was really frustrated observing specific types of content. And, you know, then they come on and be like, well, you know, just because I have a platform doesn't mean I have to talk about things. I'm like, but you, you're an influencer, right? So you realize you have an influence on people. That's how you're making money. Why would you not want to influence people on these types of things? Why would you not want to encourage people to learn more? Why would you not want to inspire people to be more educated and be a better person? And I especially had a really hard time, you know, when Biden was and Kamala Harris were elected and some people didn't even acknowledge. And I'm like, you're a woman. And we just had our first female ever elected as vice president, how can you not acknowledge this historic moment? And people will go on and post about fucking Earth Day, but you're not going to post about this type of history. That is what really, really bothered me because they're so fearful. And, you know, there are obviously personal things that could happen. And, you know, a lot of people were like, well, some of my family members support Trump. And I'm like, okay, I know people that support Trump in my personal life. And I know that they're watching my content and I don't like, even if my parents were Trump supporters, I would, that would not stop me. And that I don't think that should be an excuse. And I think that if anything, it should inspire you to talk more. Um, but also I just feel that I, I didn't understand how it couldn't be acknowledged. It just felt very odd to me. Yeah, I think I definitely agree with you for, I mean, and for me when, 
RBG died. Um, that was oh, within yes. the first. I cried on my stories. Literally, same. I cried on my stories. I was in my first like month of having a following, and I was like sitting there freaking out because it was like, this is a massive issue in this country, and like we are just gonna like this woman did so much, and like so much is on the line, and I think both of us get a lot of nasty dms from people being like stop talking about this or how do you know trump is racist or all these things and it's really frustrating to do but like at the end of the day like there are so many things that you share or even i share that people wouldn't have known otherwise and Mm -hmm. that's why it's important because if it can help one person move towards building a better country for all of us then like it's it's worth it to do like um, but it is definitely a mind fuck to lose all these followers because you like just want basic human rights for everybody right and you know obviously it does suck that a large part of my job revolves around how many followers I have but at the same time I never started this job and I will never stay in this job for the numbers and I will never change my behavior out of fear of losing followers and again there's a privilege in that because you know I feel I have a safety net and I could walk away from this and figure something else out but at the same time if you're in it just for those reasons I do think you should question you know your morals yeah (laughs) for sure you should probably question your morals (laughs) love that Um, okay so I know it's I could talk to you all day about all my questions I have for you because I'm just like so in all of everything but um i would love to ask you before a few little rapid fire questions what is one resource that's helped you learn that's helped you learn exponentially this year it could be a book podcast anything um i would say me and my white privilege the book it's an active workbook um i haven't heard of that one I'll have to get it for my family. Maybe I'll bring that to Thanksgiving. Oh, yes. That'll be great. It's by Layla Efsad. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right. Or Me and White Supremacy. I'm sorry. Not Me and My White Privilege. Me and White Supremacy. Um, It's an active workbook. And so it's I want to say it's like 28 days. And you have to actively do it. You have to journal. You know, there are journal prompts at the end of each day. And I think that was one of the things that really, really helped me. Awesome. Love that. Um, definitely going to look into that for many people in my life. <laughs> yes. Um, so then, okay, I have a few rapid fire questions. Yes. Are you ready for them? I'm ready. Fabulous. Okay. The first is appetizers or dessert? Dessert. I knew you'd say that. <laughs> um, ice cream for the winds. <laughs> Instagram yes. or TikTok? Instagram. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like Instagram's more like ingrained in my life too, yes. but TikTok always isn't more of an escape for me. Um, favorite TV show of all time? Split between friends and the office. Love that for you. Very, very love the comedy. Um, favorite podcast. I think we know the answer. To oh, this Zach one. Shepard, armchair expert. Clearly, clearly. And then what is your most important self-care practice? meditating i meditate every morning for 20 minutes oh my god i gotta get on that yeah i need to get to that level and calm my brain down but i just don't know how okay so then (laughs) my final question for you is finish this sentence with something you want young people to know you're too smart for believing what older people tell you 
Love it. Thank you so, so much for this conversation. I'm really honored to have you as my first guest and I cannot wait for when you're baby and to, <laughs> to see all the incredible things you do. Thank you, beautiful. I'm so appreciative for being on here and I'm so proud of you. And I know that you have been talking about struggling with imposter syndrome and I want you to know that I have it. Everyone has it. No one knows what the fuck they're doing. So just keep following your heart because you're doing a great job. Thank you so much. That means so much coming from you. Thank you so much for listening to the Too Smart for This podcast. Be sure to leave a review if you liked it. It takes two seconds. And follow the show on Instagram at Too Smart for This Pod. Check back every Tuesday and Friday for new episodes. And make sure to follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Alexis Barber for more content about lifestyle, health, and career. And don't forget, you're too smart to not love yourself.